be read together. Only turn in your Bibles this time to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. to read a little bit more of that passage so that we understand the context and and let me just give you the short version. Corinth is a mess, okay? This is a a place where the gospel has come to and they were in the midst of just some of the worst paganism and pagan activity uh, in the uh, world, in that area of the world in the first century. Uh, They had practices that were uh, just as base as you can imagine, and they counted it as worship. Okay, the, 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 the quip is that sailors were disappointed if on their sailing trip they didn't get a chance to stop in at Corinth and debauch themselves. Okay? And the gospel comes to the people at Corinth, and their lives are changed, but yet they've spent their entire life in this type of living. Now, how is it that they're going to make the turn towards holiness, the turn towards graciousness in their lives, and the move to understand what the Lord is doing? So 1 Corinthians really is Paul's response to a list of questions that they have sent to him in an effort to understand how they should apply the gospel. And when we get to chapter 11, Paul is dealing specifically with issues around the Lord's Supper. And there are some excesses going on in the church at Corinth dealing with the Lord's Supper. And that brings us up to our passage in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we'll begin in verse 17. So if you're able, would you stand with me and I'll read this passage. We can discern what the Lord has for us today. Heavenly Father, we ask that our eyes would be open to the things of Christ. That we would have understanding how we are to apply these things specifically as they deal with our hearts as we come to the Lord's table and what happens there, Lord, that we might receive the grace that you have for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll begin in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So let's break there for a second and be reminded what's happening. They're bringing, the rich people are bringing their food to the Lord's Supper and they're having a knockdown, drag out party and sometimes it's devolving into a drunken party and the poor people are coming with no food and and. So there is this division within the church around the Lord's table. And Paul is saying you should eat at home and come to celebrate the Lord's Supper in an appropriate fashion. And now he goes into the theology of the issue, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining manners I shall arrange when I come. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Because we're dealing with the Lord's Supper today, the nature of the topic is, um, is somewhat more theological, okay? Uh, so we're going to be in, in an area uh, which is, uses language, which I'll, I'll try to, to define and make sure you understand. It is deeper because you cannot understand what goes on here through soundbite theology, Okay? We all know what sound bites are. You hear that on the news and politicians love sound bites. You know, it's one phrase or one sentence that will get played throughout the day that has very little depth or meaning to it, but it sounds good. That doesn't work in theology. We cannot define, we cannot explain, we cannot expound upon what happens at this table in sound bites. It is deep, it is some, somewhat obtuse even, but it is rich, and we cannot be believers without a good understanding of what goes on here at the Lord's table. Now, we partake of it every month, and to some degree, uh, some people might believe uh, or might think, oh, well, that's the Lord's Supper. We're going to get out a little bit later than, than usual, or others may long for it. They may think, I can't wait to get there, okay, to participate in the Lord's Supper. We know There's bread and there's juice there on the table, but yet there's far more to it. Let's go back a few years to a place and time where a right understanding and a proper practice of the Lord's Supper was an issue of life and death, and I am not exaggerating about that. The year is 1559. It's in a Lutheran church in Heidelberg, Germany. The prayers have been offered, the promises read, and the psalm has been sung. Two princes step forward to receive communion, but the deacon refuses to give them the cup because their behavior in the past week had been so outrageous. Well, the superintendent of the city's pastors ordered a second minister who was present to come and take the cup from the deacon and serve the two nobles. Well, a fight ensues over the cup. Okay, this would be like if we were put it in today's language. Here I am down at the table, and and, and you're coming down, and I see you, and um, you know, uh, I I just for whatever reason I don't think your heart is right, so I'm not going to serve you the Lord's supper. And a, and an elder comes over and says, "Well, give me that cup, Randy. I'll serve it to them. They're good guys. You ought to give them that cup." And I say, "No." And we have a knockdown, dragout fight right here in front of the church. 
This is what happens here. Immediately, when the cup was taken from the deacon, the superintendent of pastors in that city excommunicated him. Okay? Now, excommunication is being kicked out of the church. He would not serve the Lord's Supper to these two individuals, and therefore the head pastor kicked him out of the church. The minister was a Lutheran named Telamon Heshesh, and the deacon who refused to serve him was a Zwinglian named Klebitz. Now, you think, uh, what's the difference between a Lutheran and a Zwinglian? A Lutheran has a very distinct view of the Lord's Supper. It's not the view that the Roman church has, nor is it the review, the view that the Calvinists or the Reformed church would have. It is a view that the Lord is present in, on, and around the elements. Okay, it is kind of a mixture of, if we're going to reduce it to our terms, a mixture of Presbyterianism and Roman Catholicism together. What, does a, what view does a Zwinglian have? Zwinglian today would be much more um, Methodist or Wesleyan or, or Baptist. It's just a place we get together and remember what the Lord did. Okay? These were very opposing views. And a fight ensued. When was the last time you saw a fight over the Lord's Supper? Okay? Maybe we'll have one today just for good measure. I, I don't know, okay? Well, as ugly as it sounds, we have to understand that, that the issue of serving and the denial of the service of the Lord's Supper in 1559 reminds us that people took it very seriously. It was a life and death issue. People who did it wrong were kicked out. People who did not have the right view were kicked out. Some were even killed because they had a different view of the Lord's Supper. Now, this reminds us of a time when people took seriously the means of grace. The means of grace are tangible items that help us understand God's grace. Tangible items such as the sacraments, worship, fellowship, prayer, uh, things like that, that, that we can get our hands on in a sense, that remind us of God's grace and his mercy to us and in our lives. I think few evangelical Christians or churches in our time are so devoted to the Lord's Supper that we would be willing to fight about it, willing to fight about it. And why is that? Why don't we take this seriously or why don't we have such an issue that we are, we get our back up about it? Is it because we don't grasp what takes place here? Is it because we don't understand it? Maybe we never really understood it. Maybe we've just been on, on the, tote, the coattails. Well, I've done it this way all my life. And this is what we do. And it has become ritual or rote to you. And there is a great danger in those things. Perhaps we have become bored with the ordinary means of grace, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. That would be a dangerous thing to let happen. Fighting over who gets to take the Lord's Supper might seem a bit silly in our society. But remember, this is a sacrament not instituted by one of the apostles. It was not instituted by an early church father. Not by Luther, not by Calvin, not by Wesley, not by Edwards, not by Jenkins, but by Jesus Christ himself. He said, do this until when? Until he comes back. Now, he didn't say, go through the motions till I come back. He said, do this. It must have been so important that we participate in this 
event, in this sacrament, that it would somehow sustain us until he returns. Now, I'm going to put the big word, theological word, that covers so many things on the Lord's Supper and what happens here. To some degree, it is a mystery what happens here. But we know that it is real in our hearts and in our lives. So we'll keep that in mind. He commanded believers to do it frequently until his return. And Paul warned the Corinthians that the reason many were experiencing untimely deaths and sickness and weaknesses is because they were doing it wrong. They were doing it wrong. Now, how do we apply that in our lives today? Has there ever been a time you've walked out of here and just did it rote and did it just because we were doing it that day and then felt ill? That's never happened to me. But that does not mean that if I come to this table in a manner that is unworthy, I will either miss out on what the Lord has for me or something will come upon me in some fashion. And I can't define it other than that. Paul has defined it very clearly uh, here. He says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That's a euphemism for are dead. Now, did they die because they participated in an unworthy manner? I don't think that's it. I think they died because they were unable, because their hearts were hardened or whatever issue was in there, and they didn't receive or didn't experience all that the Lord had for them at this table. It's a mystery, okay? So if the Lord's Supper in some places is not important, then why does Christ institute it? And why was it worth fighting over in 1559, but hardly takes a blink of, to notice the distinctions? that we, we don't pay attention to the distinctions of it within our church today, within the church as a whole. Okay, Paul says, in fact, that Holy Communion is an actual participation in the body and blood of Christ. If you're in chapter 11, go back one to chapter 10. And I'm I'm sorry, I'm suddenly blanking on where that says it exactly. Um, Pardon? 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't do both. Okay, your heart has to be right. It has to be devoted to the Lord. Okay, we are partakers of what goes on here at the table. Now, what goes on here? Well, there's bread and there's juice, but there's way more than that going on here as we look at it he says we break the bread in participation in the body of christ so whoever eats and drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against themselves against the elements against the body and blood of christ himself this is serious business you know the more you study the more you think wow the Lord is, is serious about that. Paul, in his, his admonition to the Corinthians, is serious. This is not something that should be sloughed off. This is really important. Not sinning against the memory of Christ, sinning against the Lord himself. But the purpose of the Lord's Supper is not, not to hold out 
judgment. It is to hold out forgiveness and pardon and mercy that can only be found through the work of Jesus Christ. See, through it, we receive the benefits of Christ's death. In fact, we receive nothing less than Christ himself. Understand that the sacraments are not about what we have done, not about us. Rather, they testify, that's the Lord's Supper, and seal, that is baptism, what Christ has already done for us. There's no additional work that is needed to Christ on the cross. These sacraments are things that testify to his work, that seal his grace within our hearts. These are the things that go on here. The Lord's Supper, as instituted by Christ, speaks to our union with him, our union with him and his real presence in the midst of us. The purpose of the Supper is not to save us, but to help us grow in grace, to conform our faith and to seal us to Christ's imputed righteousness in our hearts. We must first receive this, of course, through faith in Christ. You can come to the table and not believe and get nothing. In fact, you might be the ones who, one of the ones that get judgment and, and, and punishment upon them. But if you come as a believer in Christ with a heart that has sought forgiveness, there is much to be found here at this table. Let me give you a, a summary from Charles Hodge, who was a leading Princeton theologian in the 1800s. He talked about the Lord's Supper in this way. In the Lord's Supper, we are said to receive Christ and the benefits of his redemption to our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. As our natural food imparts life and strength to our bodies, so this sacrament is one of the divinely appointed means to strengthen the principle of life in the soul of the believer and to confirm his faith in the promises of the gospel. By taking the bread and the wine, the symbols of Christ's body and blood given to us, we are united to him. He is our head, he is our life, he is our all in all, and we are united to him in this process. The efficiency, the efficacy of this sacrament, how it is effective in our lives, is not to be referred to any virtue in the ordinance itself. We believe it's bread and juice, or whether it's elements or actions, much less the administrator. That means what you get out of the Lord's Supper is not dependent upon my spiritual life. Okay? My, my prayer life can be down the tubes, and you can still receive the things of the Lord here at the table. Because it is Christ who is at work in the midst of this. In this sacrament, Christ is not present bodily, but is present spiritually. That's what makes it effective to our spiritual lives. Whatever takes place within us while we are celebrating the Lord's Supper is due to Christ. You don't come here and manufacture something. You come here and participate and receive something. According to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Lord's Supper really fits in with the Passover from the Old Testament, and there are a, a couple of other feasts that the Jewish people celebrated at that time. But this parallels the things of the Passover. Remember in the Passover, the lamb was slain and its blood was painted on the lentils, on the doorposts. 
Okay, and the angel of death would pass over that household because the blood of the lamb had been slain and marked them as belonging to the Lord. The same type of thing goes on here. The blood of the lamb that is slain for us for the forgiveness of the world marks us. We have been marked by his blood, washed in it, forgiven of our sins, and the punishment of death passes over us. Okay, we don't face the enormity and the eternity of real death. Yes, we will all die. But for those who are in Christ, it is just a momentary blink because when our eyes open, who will we see? We will see Christ. He will stand before us. He will welcome us in because he has done the work for us. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come in to all the things that I have prepared for you. Jesus Christ said he came to fulfill the things of the Old Testament. Not to abolish them, but to fulfill. They sacrificed animals again and again and again and again because those animals were imperfect. And that blood covered only temporary. Christ is the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God. There is no need for any other sacrifice. There is no need for any other work to cleanse us of our sins. We don't have to do anything. We receive the grace of Christ and we are changed forever. Forever. So let's remember that the manner of eating is spiritual. It is not physical. Yes, we will physically partake, but the things that happen to us are spiritual. We truly receive Christ by faith. We don't receive him by our mouths. Remember, we are reformed in what we believed. And in the words of institution, the body of Christ is not brought down to us because he never leaves the right hand of the Father. But his presence is real by the power of the Spirit here within this building. And it is the same at every church that celebrates the Lord's Supper. And we, never leaving this congregation, never leaving the pew, are somehow taken right to the throne of grace through the mercy of our Heavenly Father and the work of Christ. It is the soul, not the body, that receives the reality of what is promised here at this table. Now you think, oh man, I was all set to take the Lord's Supper until you started in on this, Rand. I, I can see I really have no business here. I mean, who am I to come to the Lord's table? And that's exactly right. But it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Isn't that right? He didn't say, when you get your stuff together, Randy, then you can come and participate in the Lord's table. When you get your stuff together and clean up your life, then I'll have a look at you and maybe you can make it into my kingdom. That is not what he said. He said, Jenkins, you are filthy. You have no business before me, but my father has called you by name and I have given my life for you. You will be cleansed. You may come into my presence. It is the work of Christ that does this. So when you come to the table, you might say, well, do I have enough faith to come to the table? If you have believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you may come to the table. Is your heart ready? That's up to you to decide. Have you confessed the things that are upon you? Have you sought forgiveness for those things? If you have done that, come to the table. Come to the table. Have I sufficiently confessed my sin? That might be a long time to list all your sins. You throw yourself before the throne of grace. 
because our Heavenly Father has made a way that we might go right to the throne of grace and just lay our hearts and ourselves right before him and seek the forgiveness that he alone offers. One last item. You do show the Lord's death until he returns. How do we show the Lord's death in the Lord's table? Charles Spurgeon said it this way. The word has a couple of meetings and they all melt into one, but we shall get at it better by dividing it. It is meant here by showing Christ's death that we declare it. When the emblems are placed upon the table, the bread and the wine, and we gather around it, we declare our firm belief that Jesus, the Son of God, descended into this world and died as a sacrifice for sin. It has been found that if a great event is to be kept in mind in succeeding ages, there must be some memorial of it. Men, by degrees, forget it and even come to be dubious as to whether such an event even occurred. Sometimes a stone has been set up like a monument. God, when he would have the children of Israel remember that he brought them out of Egypt with a high hand and an outstretched arm, did not bid them set up a monument, but he ordained a ceremony which was to be practiced on a certain day, and that is called the Passover. And a lamb would be slaughtered, and the eating of it became a yearly declaration by the people of Israel that they believed that God brought their fathers up out of the house of bondage. So effective has this been that men have often used the same device. When the Jewish people escaped from the plot which was laid uh, by them in, by Haman through the wisdom of Mordecai in the book of Esther, they ordained the keeping the feast of Purim that they might have a perpetual memory of the goodness of their Heavenly Father. So to show, this means to declare, to testify. It means to represent. It means to hold forth, to make manifest, to publish, to call attention to. We have no other Christianity than this, that Christ died and rose again. And we cannot come to the Lord's table without showing it. The moment we gather around this table and break the bread and pour out wine, whoever asks us, what does this mean? What does this ordinance mean? The answer is prompt. We set forth to you that Jesus died. We are not ashamed of a crucified Savior. Christ and him crucified. For it is here that salvation of the sinner lies in the cross and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We tell them that this is the sum and substance of all the gospel that we preach to them. God hath set forth Christ to be a propitiation of our sins, an appeasement of our sin, because we could not do it ourselves. Christ has done it. And it is here at this table that this grace is made tangible for us. So let's pray. Gracious Lord, this sacrament has been set forth right from the mouth of our Lord and Savior Christ, that he commanded that we should participate in the body and blood of Christ. And the promise is before us that it is here 
at his table. That that grace may be experienced in a tangible fashion. These are common elements that you use in an incredibly uncommon way. For there is nothing common about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. There is nothing common about the mercy that he bestows upon those who belong to him. There is nothing common about the peace that can only be found through Jesus Christ. It is uncommon that the likes of us should be able to experience it. Prepare us, Lord, for this event. Prepare us to participate in the body and blood of Christ, that we might know your blessing and the grace that is here for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.